itself, TJ. Can you believe that? That's good. Good morning. I'm Bud Brainerd. I'm one of the pastors here at Lake Forest, and uh, we're glad to have you here with us. You're seated in a circle. Some of the people in the circle are cautious about Jesus and about the church. Maybe they've had a bad experience in the past. Most of us have had a bad experience at one time or another. Some of the people in the circle are curious about Jesus. Who is he? What does it mean to follow him? And others are fully committed to following him already. It doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum. This is a safe place for you to learn, to grow, and to change. So we are delighted that you're here. As long as you don't have it all together, you're going to fit right in. Now the round reminds us that we're all here to grow spiritually, but we're also here to do that together. We're kind of all in the same boat, if you will. We're all embarking on the same journey uh, together. We are all subject to the same storms in life, and we are all targets of God's rescue and redemption. So a little bit about me. Tuesday is uh, the 14th wedding anniversary for Becky and I. So this is our anniversary week. That's not the point. The point is that Thursday, we are leaving to drive down to Port Canaveral to take our very first cruise. Becky is a researcher, so she's been doing research on, you know, what do you do on a cruise? How do you prepare? You know, what, what do you avoid? What do you want to get involved in? What things cost? That was a little disappointing. Uh, but she's great at that. What I have been doing is reading Jonah 1 to 16. I mean, you know, that's the story where a big storm comes up, you know, and everything gets thrown overboard, including one of the passengers. God has a great sense of timing and a sense of humor. So that's kind of how we've been preparing for uh, what we're going to be doing here uh, together. Jonah is a short book. It's only four chapters long. It's not the shortest book in the Bible, but it's in the top ten. And we're preaching our way through this book of the Bible, hoping that all of you will, either on the Bible that you already have, or if you don't have one, you can take one uh, from the seat, or on a Bible app. We're encouraging everybody to read through the entire story from beginning to end several times. You can do it in one sitting. And we would encourage you to write down any insights that you gain as you go through the book and also any questions that the book raises for you. And believe me, Jonah is full of, of things that will cause you to, to learn and cause you to question. So this is the, the second in the series. We're going to do, uh, I don't know, four, five, six, depending on how long it goes, uh, sermons on this particular book of the Bible. Now last week, Michael provided everybody with a little bit of background on Jonah and Nineveh. So not all of you were here because I remember every face every week. Uh, no, not really. But I know that some of you weren't here, so I'm going to do a quick review and I'm going to add just a few things to what Michael had to say. First of all, Jonah is a book about a, a prophet. This prophet worked in the 8th century BC. He served under a king called Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II was one of the good kings in Israel, and Jonah was a pretty good prophet. I mean, he was really good at what he did. As a matter of fact, he's the one that prophesied to Jeroboam, 
you're going to recapture all the land that Solomon once had controlled. And that was a lot. They had lost a lot of ground between Solomon and Jeroboam. So he was, he was really good at what he did. He worked in the northern uh, part of the kingdom and, uh, and was good at, uh, good at his job. Now, Nineveh, we want to talk a little bit about Nineveh. Nineveh is first mentioned in Scripture in Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, we find out that the founder of the city of Nineveh was Noah's great-grandson. Noah sent him to Assyria, and there he built the city of Nineveh. Now, this grandson's name is Nimrod. Do you think he got teased a little bit when he was a kid? How'd you like to go through life with a name like Nimrod? But anyway, uh, he, he builds this city in Assyria. Now, for those of you who like to have some geographical reference, you know, uh, some of these cities and places are hard to find today. Now, I don't have a map as professionally drawn as Michael had last week. So I, all I had to work with was Google. So let's pull that map up. And here you can see, this is a modern map. You see Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Up at the very northern part of Iraq, you see a little dot, and, and you can barely read it, but that says Mosul. Now, you have probably heard of the town Mosul. It has been in the, in the news for the last five or six years. Directly across the Tigris River is where the city of Nineveh was located. Now, what you also need to know about Nineveh is at the time, Nineveh is the capital of the, uh, of the empire called Assyria. Now, Assyria was Israel's arch enemy. As a matter of fact, they were enemies with everybody. Nobody liked Assyria. And the reason they didn't like Assyria is because they were brutal. The best way to describe the Assyrians is for you to think of ISIS. So get ISIS in your mind. Now, think of some of, the, some of the training videos that ISIS has put out, most of which can't be shown on television. Those would look like kindergarten stories compared to the way the Assyrians uh, punished and, and, uh, and brutalized the people that they, that they conquered. The Assyrian assault on Israel is described in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 15 through 18. If you go a little bit further back in the Old Testament, you'll find a prophet named Nahum. The whole book, his whole book, his whole ministry was about prophesying the de destruction of Assyria. Isaiah prophesies about the destruction of Assyria, as does Zephaniah. So the Assyrians were some bad folks. Nineveh is their capital. And God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Just go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness had come to God's attention. Now, knowing what little bit you know about Assyria, I'll bet that you're thinking God is going to lower the boom on those wicked Ninevites. Or maybe you're thinking the capital of Assyria is about to feel the full force of God's wrath. Here's a spoiler alert. That is not what God intends to do. 
at least not at this point in history. And there's where the rub comes from Jonah, to be honest. That's Jonah's problem. Jonah doesn't want any good to come to the Ninevites. He wants to see them destroyed. Jonah knows that he and God are not on the same page when it comes to dealing with this enemy. Just to put it plainly, Jonah simply disagrees with God. He disagrees with God. Now, there's no question that enemies need to be dealt with. But Jonah wanted this enemy ruined, and God wants them redeemed. Jonah wants them ruined, and God wants them redeemed. Now, to be fair, to be absolutely fair, Jonah did not reject God's instruction without cause. He had his reasons. He had his reasons. And truth be told, most of us reject God's instruction. And when we do it, we don't do it uh, without reason. There's something in God's word that we disagree with. We usually have a good reason to disagree. It may not be a good reason, but it's our reason. But we don't disagree with what God tells us to do just to be honorary. When God tells us to do something and we disagree with it, it's because it goes against what we know or it goes against logic. And we tend to trust ourselves over God. We all operate out of what we know. The problem is that we don't know everything. That's the problem. We don't know everything and God does. Why is it? I was talking to somebody last week who was having their bathroom remodeled. Now, they started the project, right? They got, they got about a third of the way into it because they had watched those HGTV shows, you know, where it looks really simple. It doesn't cost hardly anything, and you can actually do a whole house in 30 minutes, right? So they got into the project, and what they discovered is that they were in a place that they couldn't finish. So they called somebody who actually knew how to remodel a bathroom. When you need your car worked on, don't you go to somebody who knows more about working on your car than you do? It's amazing. When we have a computer virus and we need that removed, we turn to the people who understand how all of that works and we rely on them to do the work. And yet, and yet, we ignore the advice and counsel of the creator of the universe. That's a head-scratcher. It's a head-scratcher. I think there's a little bit of Noah, or Jonah, rather, in us all. If we live long enough, we're going to cross paths with people that would make us want to cuss and spit. People who are our enemies, people we are convinced need to get exactly what they deserve. Like Michael said last week, that could be a one person or it could be a whole people. It really doesn't matter. When we feel like God should take things and make things right by taking our side against our enemy, at that point, we are really in touch with how Jonah was feeling and how he was thinking at the time. You see, enemies, enemies need to be dealt with. We have a hard time when God wants to deal with our enemies in ways that make us think 
that he is being unjust or just plain wrong. Sometimes what we think will satisfy us is actually the opposite of what will satisfy God. God says a lot of things in his word that at first glance, I have a hard time agreeing with. I mean, it just runs against everything, every bone in my body. For instance, in one of Jesus' sermons, now this is, we're going to find out how much, how much of the little Jonah lives in you. In one of Jesus' sermons, this is what he says. Love your enemies and do good to them. Then your reward will be great and you will be the children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now, Jesus says our enemies are ungrateful and wicked. Heck, we knew that. We could have told him that. But did you notice that Jesus tells us that God is kind to them? That God is merciful to our enemies? And to make matters worse, he tells us to be merciful to our enemies. Now I really feel like Jonah and I understand why he was so resistant to what God had asked of him. But to put a, put a bow on this first point, if you read in Romans 5, what you find is that the Apostle Paul says that we were once ungodly sinners and enemies of God. But God has shown us love. Even while we were all of those things, God sent his son to save and to reconcile us. Jonah's mistake, and sometimes our mistake, is thinking that God is out to ruin his enemies when he is really out to redeem them. Us. Them. Us. Us and God is not out to ruin his enemies. He's out to redeem them. So meanwhile, back on the cruise, Jonah seems to be the only new guy on board. He's a paying customer. He, he bought a ticket. Everybody else on the, on the ship is a part of the crew. Jonah's asleep below deck, and then this really, really, really big storm comes up. As a matter of fact, uh, in the in translation we read, it, it says that, that this, this was a great wind that God sent. The, story in the, the storm in the story of Jonah has a special purpose. Now, the Hebrew language is really beautiful here. It doesn't say that there was a great wind that, that just showed up. The Hebrew says that God hurled this storm at the ship. It's the same verb that's used for hurling a spear. Now, you don't just, you don't just chuck a spear into the air and, you know, that's what you do with the arrow. I shot an arrow into the air and where it lands, I know not where. You don't do that with spears. Spears, you pick a target and you hurl the spear at the target. And that's what God does. God has a target for the storm. And so he hurls this spear at the storm. 
It's important to remember that the God who stills the storm, which he does in in verse 15, is the same God who sends it. But it's also important to note that God is not out to punish Jonah, but to turn him around and to restore him. The deck is absolutely awash with irony. The wind, the sea, the ship, all of these non-Hebrew polytheistic crew members, they all understand what's going on. The only one who doesn't seem to get it is Jonah, the prophet of God. The Lord was about to turn this voyage of Jonah into a teachable moment. And the teachable moment is that the plans of a sovereign God are not easily thwarted, not even by a stubborn prophet of his own. So the sailors get what's going on. They sense that the storm is different from all the other storms they had encountered. This storm is somehow connected with a powerful God who is determined to get somebody's attention. They don't know who. Maybe it was them. Maybe maybe it really is. Maybe the storm is targeted at them. So what do they do? These these non-Hebrew polytheistic sailors, they all pray to their own God. They start praying. And they're praying hard. The only problem is prayers don't seem to help. The next order of business is they're going to lighten the ship. Anything and everything that is not nailed down gets cast off. They are in trouble. They are in deep trouble. They are in deep water. And no one on board is taking this storm lightly except Jonah, the prophet of God. And he's down below decks and he's just taking a nap. Says that he's sleeping soundly. He must have been sleeping pretty soundly. If the wind and the waves... And all the commotion above deck are not waking him up. He is sound asleep. I suppose that running from God can be exhausting. That's probably right. That running from God can be exhausting. So in a last-ditch effort to save the ship, the sea captain wakes Jonah up. He pleads with him. He says, look, we've been praying to our gods. Nothing's it's not working. How about you praying to your God? That makes sense. Let's get everybody involved here. Let's let everybody participate. You pray to your God so that maybe your God will recognize what's going on and will save us. Did Jonah pray? There's no record of Jonah praying. Everybody else on board prays. But when the captain of the ship wakes him up and says, you need to pray too, there's no record of Jonah praying. It's hard to run from God and pray to God at the same time. Praying to God is an activity that's based on trust. And running from God 
is just the opposite. So Jonah comes up on deck now, and the crew have already figured out that the storm is some kind of a supernatural origin. They decide they'd better figure out who's to blame, and they better figure it out fast. So they cast lots. Now, that doesn't sound very scientific to me, but you have to do whatever you've got at hand. They cast lots, and Jonah wins or loses. I'm not sure which. But they identify Jonah as the person who might have the answer to this. And the crew doesn't put the blame on Jonah right away. In fact, they just ask him, hey, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. But isn't that what everybody wants to know? When the ship is sinking, don't we want to know whose fault it is? Don't we want to know who's to blame? When the storms of life come, don't we look for somebody to pin it on? When I asked Jonah the question, once again, he doesn't answer. He doesn't answer the question. Now, we don't know if he took the fifth or if he still thought he had outwitted God and successfully escaped his calling. But nevertheless, when they ask him the first question, all they get is crickets. Crickets. So the next question they ask him, uh, several more questions, the next question that they ask him tells us that the crew was an all-male crew. There were no women on board. As a matter of fact, if there had been a woman on board, they probably would have blamed the woman. That's what sailors do back in those days, right? But we know as an all-male crew, how do we know that? Because their next question is, what do you do for a living? Isn't it like a bunch of guys, right? You meet somebody, say, hey, what do you do for a living? That's what we want to know. We think that's the most important thing. Then they ask him, where do you come from? What's your country? And as they would say in lower Alabama, who do your people be? So they're asking him all these questions. And finally, finally, Jonah speaks. It's the first time he speaks in the entire story. And here's what he says. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then he also tells him, we find out in verse 10, he says, I'm running away from God. Hmm. These sailors sailing from Joppa would have been familiar with Hebrews, not the book, that comes later, but with the Hebrew people. They would, have, they would have been able to connect with that. They would have even been able to connect with the fact that, that he worships the Lord, the God of heaven. They were probably Phoenician sailors. And the Phoenicians had a God that they called the Lord, uh, the God of heaven. But it's the last thing that he says that throws them for a loop. He says, his God is the one who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah's God is the God over everything. There's, there's, no, there's no court of appeal above this God. This God is in charge of everything. That last phrase causes them to stop being afraid. Earlier in the story, it says they were afraid when the storm came. But they're not afraid anymore. They're terrified. They are absolutely 
terrified, and they asked Jonah a rhetorical question, what have you done? Now, why would that be a rhetorical question? It's because they already knew what he had done. Jonah was running from God. Well, good luck with that, Jonah. Let me ask you, Have you ever tried to run from God? I have. I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can admit that at one time or another, we have refused to accept and obey what God has told us to do. Sometimes we don't agree with what God tells us to do. Sometimes we don't understand because what God says seems to go against logic and reason. But remember, logic and reason are based on what we know, and we don't know everything. Only God does. God sees past the storm, past the prejudices, past our fears and misgivings, past our reason. God sees the end from the beginning All God asks of us is that we trust him. That we take him at his word. So the best course of action we can take in any situation is to trust what God says. Now that might mean we have to change our mind. But that's okay. In Luke chapter 15, Luke tells this great story that, that almost everybody's familiar with about the prodigal son. You know, the son that gets his inheritance and he goes off and he ends up in a, living in a pigsty and things are, things are really bad. And then Luke says, he came to his senses, which means he began to trust his father. When the prodigal son came to his senses, his peril ended. His predicament was resolved. Not immediately, but it was resolved. And the same thing is going to happen to Jonah. Jonah's predicament is going to be resolved eventually. But like most of us, It's in those moments, hours, days, weeks, and months, before we come to our senses, that life becomes unsettled and uncertain. Before we come to our senses, we often make one or more than one bad choices, bad decisions. And that's what Jonah does. Jonah chooses poorly. One of the consequences of poor choices is that they undermine our sense of self-worth. We get down on ourselves and devalue ourselves. Poor choices can make us feel like we are more trouble than we are worth. Maybe you have felt like that at one point or another in your life. Maybe, maybe you feel like that today. If you're raising children, I pr- 
promise you, when they make bad choices, they are going to be tempted to feel like they are more trouble than they are worth. And it is your job as parents to convince them otherwise. To show them that their poor choices don't have anything to do with how God loves them and how you love them as a parent. Because God's love and your love as a parent is meant to be unconditional. Unconditional. So poor Jonah. He feels like he is more trouble than he's worth. That's why this is what he says. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The world would be better off without me in it. I don't know if you can imagine resigning yourself to a watery grave rather than repenting and doing what God has asked you to do. It's not uncommon for people who know deep down that they've abandoned and ignored God to engage in all kinds of self-destructive behavior rather than repent. Some people turn to alcohol or drugs. A whole host of spiritual and emotional bad behavior is born out of a sense of having consciously ignored God's direction in our life. Now Jonah's in a bad place. And you might think this is the end of Jonah. But Jonah doesn't get to write the end of his story. God does. God gets to write the end of Jonah's story. And just because Jonah is thrown overboard into the angry sea doesn't mean that God is finished with him yet. You see, even bad choices cannot thwart God's will. But that's what Holly's going to talk about next week. So my friends, this morning, if you find yourself in the midst of a storm, remember that God is not finished writing your story yet. Maybe you feel like you're running from God. It doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. As a matter of fact, God's pretty quick. And you will not be able to outrun him. The God who brings the storm can calm it. And God isn't afraid to bring storms into our lives. That doesn't bother him one iota when he needs to get our attention. But God also has the ability to calm any storm in life. That's what happens to Jonah eventually. And that's what will happen to us. And remember those people that cause you to want to cuss and spit? Maybe God loves them more than you do. So this morning, we need to ask ourselves where and what is 
your Nineveh. When God speaks to you, will you trust him enough to do what he asks, even when you disagree and even when you don't understand? And this morning, if it's, if it's been a while since you've prayed, it might be a good idea to ask yourself if you're running from God. If you're running from God, I'll tell you this morning, it's okay. It's okay. God is not out to punish you, but God is out to turn you around and to restore you. Let's pray together. I want to give all of the runners among us a chance to pray again. To just talk to God. Lord, we are grateful this morning that while we were your enemies, you sent your Son to die for our sins in our place, to save and to rescue us. Lord, help us to remember that that's, that's your will for all people, even our enemies. And Lord, if, if we are tired, exhausted by trying to run from you, I pray that you would give us rest. that you would bring us safe to shore. Lord, we thank you for your love for us and for the world. Forgive us of the times that we have disagreed with you. Help us with the times where we don't understand. And let us simply trust. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who has never trusted in you, I pray that, that they would give that a try. We'll be here after the service and be glad to visit. We make this our prayer in the name of the one 
who has saved us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and worship God.